Well, thank you once again for joining us. Welcome to Grace. Uh, we want to conclude our study in the book of Philippians today. So to get us started, let's read the final portion of Paul's handbook on joy. Uh, we'll read from, verse, from chapter 4, verse 9, down through verse 23, where Paul concludes his message to the saints of uh, this city. Uh, and we'll add a little commentary as we go. Uh, beginning in Philippians chapter 4 then, with verse 10, Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Uh, Paul used the past tense there when he said that he rejoiced over their gift. Uh, that tells us that some time had elapsed uh, from when he received this gift from these saints here in Philippi, and when he was writing this portion of the letter to thank them uh, for receiving or for having sent that gift. It didn't have to be a prolonged time. Paul's in prison, remember, in house, under house arrest in Rome. It didn't have to be a prolonged time. Paul could have begun the letter on one day, and he could have written that letter over several days, or uh, perhaps even several weeks, we don't know. But Paul's simply telling these folks of his initial reaction when the gift was first handed him by Epaphroditus and his discovery uh, that the saints in Philippi had been the donors of this, this gift to him. It wasn't the first time that these saints had contributed financially to Paul's welfare because they'd made a contribution to our apostles some ten years prior. But he's expressing here his great gratitude in the Lord that they had remembered him once again. He continues in verse 11 there, now that I, Not that I speak in respect of want. In other words, I didn't rejoice greatly when I received your gift because my condition was such uh, that I was in great need of that gift. That isn't his issue here. I wasn't really lacking anything, Paul's telling them. I wasn't rejoicing because I was in a state of desperation and needed your help. For I have learned, through his ministering years, of course, uh, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Major issue uh, when it comes to not only this epistle to the saints in Philippi, but a major issue when it comes to the joy of the believer. Therein, uh, whatever state I'm in, I've learned therewith to be content. Now, when Paul says, in whatever state I am, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to understand that the word state is used in the sense of condition. And that the condition had to do with his personal and financial need. Uh, Paul's condition in that sense had run the gamut from having nothing at all uh, to having more than plenty, more than enough to satisfy his needs. So Paul was used to being on both ends of the spectrum uh, in that area and he'd learned how to adjust his life and his attitude about his condition accordingly. In verse 12, Paul writes, I know both how to be abased. Uh, that's the Greek word uh, Tapianuo, meaning to be made low, to be uh, reduced is the idea, to be brought to a humiliatingly low condition. And I know how to abound, uh, the Greek perisouo, uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, how to have an overabundance, over and above that which I really need. I know how to do both, he said. Everywhere and in all things, no matter where I am, no matter the circumstance, is the idea here, no matter the circumstance at hand, whether poverty or whether bounty, I'm instructed, meaning I've been taught through experience uh, how to be content. Uh, if, you know, if we could all do this very same thing, what a difference it would make in our lives and what a difference it would make in the stress level of individuals. Uh, the construction in the Greek tells us the sense in I have come to learn. Uh, both to be full and to be happy, both to abound and to suffer need. 
Contentment doesn't come to us naturally, does it? Uh, We don't automatically slide toward that idea of, well, we're content, especially when we're in great need, especially when we look at our lives and see that things are topsy-turvy, our world's upside down. We're not normally content in that in that, st- that condition, uh, it's, it's not a natural course for the sin nature. We could take it to that area. The natural course of the sin nature is to never be satisfied with what we have, but to always want something different, something additional, uh, something more. Uh, a story in the Prairie Overcomer reported that coming downstairs one morning, and I'm not prone to, to tell stories here, but this one fit. Uh, coming down downstairs one morning, Lord... Congleton heard the cook exclaim, Oh, only if I had five pounds, wouldn't I be content? Uh, thinking the matter over and anxious to see the woman satisfied, he shortly thereafter handed her a five-pound note, uh, which at that point in time would have been worth about $25. She thanked him profusely. Uh, he paused outside the door to hear if she would express her satisfaction and her thanksgiving to God. And as soon as the shadow was invisible, she cried, Why didn't I say ten pounds? <laughs> so that, that's kind of what we're talking about here with this contentment with whatever... A state we're in or whatever we have uh, in the need department from our point of view. Um, and it, that just that story went with what we're talking about. Sometimes the message can be lost by meandering, and so I don't, I don't like to tell stories. And sometimes the message can be advanced by it, and this is one of those cases I thought it could be advanced. Um, life isn't about our earthly goods, uh, what we have, what we don't have, the creature comforts to which we would like to be accustomed um, those things missing in our lives from time to time, whether it be finances, whether it be uh, the right place to live, whether it be the right job, uh, whether it be the right mate, uh, all of those things, all those circumstances are things that we can become entangled with very easily, wrapped all up in and looking for the next thing, and we can become depressed over these things. It's not about what we've acquired or what we haven't acquired or what we might be able to acquire in in the future as far as the physical realm is concerned. It's about advancing the cause of Paul's gospel. That's what our lives should be all about. We're only here for a short time, a short time at the very best. Uh, the idea is that when this time is over and God's only left us in this tent for a very short time, as we said, numerous passages in Scripture talking about the brevity of life, uh, if it's not all about advancing the cause of grace, advancing, furthering the message of the grace of God that apostle, the apostle preached, then we've got our focus in the wrong direction. And how easily the things of this world can change the focus of the mind of a believer. Uh, we can begin to be very focused. We can be on fire, as we hear that expression bandied about. And then the next day, we can be down in the dumps because something's happened in our lives. We're missing something. We want something more. And contentment's gone right out the window. And I think you folks know what we're talking about. Um, how often is it that we get caught up in the things of this world to the point that we allow those things to distract us at best or rule us uh, at worst. Uh, Many times they take over in our lives and we become, uh, that word entangled that Paul uses is a, a, um, it's a word, it's a strong word, all wrapped up into the, to the point that we're in, we're uh, enmeshed, I guess you would say, where these things can become the controlling factors in our lives. We can either allow circumstances, people or things, to dictate our attitude. Or, folks, we can allow doctrine to govern our minds. Doctrine was the director of Paul's attitude. He'd learned that that was the best course through the experiences of his ministering life. That's what he's talking about here. And his verse, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now, that verse is taken out of context many times. Uh, we, we tack it to our refrigerator doors. 
uh, we think this is the this is a life verse for me. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. But the idea here with Paul is he had learned how to be content. So I can do all things is is stated directly in the context of contentment, no matter the personal circumstance at hand. No matter whether he had nothing at all and was in desperate need or had plenty more than enough. Uh, what an attitude Paul had. How opposite is the attitude Paul has just expressed uh, from that being that of being overcome by anxiety or uh, thrust weak as they thrust into the depths of despair. Paul told Timothy in his second letter to his young protege in the faith, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.1. He didn't say, be strong in what you may able to be, gain, be able to gain from God. He didn't say, be strong in your hope that God's going to give you something additionally. Or work the details out in your life so that everything will be come up roses from uh, from that point on. Or be strong in the fact that God can alter alter these circumstances in your life. Uh, he said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we know the only time Paul prayed for a physical need, for a physical healing, uh, and we don't know what it was, but most scholars believe it was his eyesight. Uh, the only time Paul prayed for that eyesight condition, and that's the only case we have of Paul praying for a physical need. Had Paul learned to be content in whatever state he was in? Certainly he did. He didn't expect God to alter every circumstance in his life. Paul trusted the Lord in every circumstance at hand. So the answer when Paul prayed for that physical condition, and you folks will remember what it was, what did God tell the Apostle Paul? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. And he went on to say, for my strength is perfected in your weakness. What a pattern for believers today. When we understand that we have the same circumstances in our lives that unbelievers have in theirs. Uh, we would say, well, we ought to be the people with different circumstances. We ought to be the folks that things, things are well with us, but not so well with those folks who don't have the prayer meetings and the 24-hour prayer chain. And uh, you know, God's doing some things for us that he's not doing for those folks. Uh, well, it's a strange thing when we begin to look at this that the rate's the same across the board. I don't care what denomination you belong to. That's not the issue here. Uh, because all the folks of every denomination and some that even reject the deity and the all-sufficiency of the crosswork of Christ, they still have their prayer meetings and they still say that God is answering their prayers like we say He's answering ours. Uh, so there's an issue here of being content in whatever circumstances we have and trusting the Lord through those circumstances. What a wonderful thing that in this age of grace, God has placed the Holy Spirit inside every believer. How often is it we think if we could get to that person or we could get to that group, maybe the pastor, uh, boy, that pastor has a direct link to God. He's got a closer link to God than any of us. I mean, you know, he, this fellow's up here teaching the Word, so if we could get to him and have him pray, or if we could get enough people praying on our behalf God would then be impacted to alter the circumstances in our lives. Uh, what, a, what a peaceful message uh, we have today in the fact that we can trust that God has placed the Holy Spirit in each of us and that he's praying, according to Paul, making intercession for the saints. And how much time off would the Holy Spirit need? None. This is the will of God for our lives, folks, that we be content in whatever situation we face. Because we don't have to reach that preacher. We don't have to reach that prayer praying group uh, trying to reach God through any of those. We have a Holy Spirit inside us praying according to God's will each and every moment of each and every day. 
He's praying according to God's will for us. And what peace we can have when we learn to be content and simply trust Him in all things. Uh, if we can trust Him up front with our forgiveness. And how many sins has He forgiven? All. We're going to learn some fascinating things as we begin the book of Romans next week when it comes to this issue of sin and the importance of understanding the words used in the language in which God had his word recorded. Because there are many words, several words, used for that word sin. So we need to look at the differences in those words and how one of those words is impossible for us to use in connection with ourselves. So it's an interesting thing, fascinating story. We need to get into that. Uh, God delivers that story in his word, and we'll do that. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When Paul was under great stress, can you imagine the stress he faced? Think about his life. Paul had more reason to have stress in his life than any of us will ever have. Uh, Go through the listing that Paul gives us. We've done it in the past. We'll not do it again this morning. But the listing in Scripture of all the things that happened to our apostle, and yet he learned to be content and in all things to give God thanks. Um, whatever physical hardship Paul faced, uh, and he faced many, he was suffering at the outset of his ministry, uh, what did the ascended Lord of glory tell our apostle? Well, to paraphrase it loosely, we could say, hang in there, Paul. Uh, That's what he told Paul. Hang in there, Paul. Um, He didn't say, work on your prayer life, Paul. Isn't that interesting? Would you not think that if you knew some folks personally, they were folks that you knew and you loved, And it was your job, like it's mine, to travel around and meet with these groups and do conferences across the country. And now, there was no God's word written down, but it was your responsibility after meeting with these folks to write back your letters to these people you've met. And God is telling you directly what he wants you to tell them. Now, we're putting you in the apostle's position here for a moment. Do you not think that in one of those letters, if you truly love those people you'd write about their physical condition and say, I'm still praying for brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so or how is brother so-and-so's this or that or sister so-and-so's this. Never once, never one time in 13 letters do we hear Paul asking about or mentioning his prayer for the physical healing of any of the saints uh, that that he encountered in his ministering life. Now, did he do that? We don't know. I, you know, I've had folks say, well, he left Epaphroditus sick. Um, well, it wasn't Epaphroditus. Who was it? Uh, Trophimus, sick at Miletum. Nigh unto death. But what did the Lord deal? He do? He healed Trophimus. Because the Lord knew what it would do to Paul. And Paul was the apostle of, of grace, the apostle of the Gentiles, committed with the truth of the dispensation of the grace of God to take to us Gentiles. Uh, a different message than than Peter and and John and the rest of the apostles taught. Uh, It was further revelation God gave concerning us, not in light of Israel's rise, prophecy, but in light of Israel's fall. She didn't rise. The Gentiles were to come to God through the rise of that nation as they were blessed and the Gentiles could come to them and reap the bounty that fell off their table, as we see in Scripture. But there was no bounty falling off the table of the Israelites. They didn't merit the blessing of that was to come from law obedience. They merited the cursing. God was teaching them a great lesson. Is he teaching all mankind? Uh, it's The things that we do, folks, are only a reflection of what we are, having that sin nature of Adam in us. Uh, we've inherited that disease. We all have it. 
So the things we do are nothing more than the symptoms of the fact we have a disease. It's not what we do that's the great issue because didn't the Son of God die for all of that? It's who we are that needed to be repaired. And God did that also by joining us to the person of His Son. So we can have great trust. Uh, God isn't saying through His Word, be stronger in your prayer life. Well, if you can muster up a certain amount of pounds per square inch of faith, then you'll be okay. God can take care of you. Uh, He wants us to simply believe in Him, trust in Him, depend upon Him, rely upon Him. Uh, to be working out in our lives what he wants to work out in our lives to advance the cause of his body. And we are his body. We are the body of Christ. Um, God didn't say, hang in there, Paul, work on your prayer life. If you can be stronger in your prayer life, Paul, then I just may eventually give you what I know you'd like to have at this point in time. We don't see any of that in Scripture. Did he say, be strong in the little things I do for you on a daily basis, Paul, the earthly blessings I send your way from time to time to show you I have a special measure of love for you. Gain your strength from those things you see that I'm doing for you on a daily basis. Did God say any of that to Paul? I can't find it. I can't find it anywhere in the Word of God. What did our Lord say to Paul again? And you folks know very well. What's the expression? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my strength is made perfect when you're weak. When you are in your weakest condition, that's when you can be strong inwardly. When you're in an outward state of disarray, that's when you can be inwardly aligned with the fact that you can trust in me in all things. Uh, God's got only his best in mind for each of us. What a thought here. God's strength perfected or brought to maturity. This is, this, this is what, how Paul learned. God's strength being perfected, brought to maturity in a believer's life when that believer learns the lesson that Paul learned. And that is to allow doctrine to be the manager of his mindset rather than circumstance in our lives. Earthly circumstance does what? It changes from day to day. We allow people, uh, we allow circumstances, we allow things to control our emotions and likewise our emotions at that point begin to manage or direct our attitudes. And... We wonder why we worry, why all the anxiety in the world, why all the stress, why all the despondency, why all the depression we see all around, uh, why they're controlling characteristics of our thought life. Uh, We can become so earthly minded that we lose our heavenly focus and that's how Paul's wrapping up this entire epistle epistle to the saints in Philippi. Uh, We shouldn't be looking at those things which are seen. Uh, Our life here is short at best and God allows us to go through the same set of circumstances that the world goes through. Uh, What does Paul tell us? That we are undergoing no special trial, no special testing, no special temptation such as not common to all mankind. So don't think when something bad happens the Lord's trying to get my attention. Um, He's not pushing a special bad button so that you might learn All the learning comes in here. All he has for us. Everything we need for life and ministry is contained within this book. So we don't need God to hit another button to cause bad things. We live in a sin-cursed world. We make faulty decisions. And guess what? Bad things are going to come along in our lives. They come along in the lives of unbelievers. They come along in the lives of believers. And Paul's saying, you know, we can trust the Lord to do exactly what he said he's going to do for us. And he's already done that, has he not? Did he not die and take every single sin of yours, past, present, future, off of you, put it on his son and judge his son for it? Well, certainly he did. Did he do that just for us believers? Or did he do that for the entire world? 
you folks already know. Read 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 again. As I said, memorize those verses. God was reconciling the world unto himself through his son's death at Calvary, not counting their sins against them. And he sent us to tell the world that. Because the gift of salvation is not something God must decide whether or not to do for an individual in their lifetime. I, I grew up that way. I'm sure many of you did. Most of you did. If you've come up through religion, as I did, that um, God has to make a decision for every person. He's sitting in that decision chair, and at some point in our life, He's going to make that decision whether or not to save you. And so we grow up with that idea, and we're never really quite sure, quite totally convinced in our mind that He's made that decision positively where we're concerned, unless maybe our religious faith or our religious structure, I should say, our religious belief system, tells us that he has because we've done the things that go in line with what they want us to do. Um, He already made the decision. There's no decision to save anyone. God made that decision long before you were ever born, long before I was ever born. God made the decision to save how many folks? Everybody who ever lived. So he put every sin of everybody who ever lived, ever will live on this planet, he put that sin on his son. And he didn't just put it there to store it for a time yet future. He put it there and judged it there. And as proof that the Father accepted the payment, God the Father was totally satisfied with what Christ did for how many again? All the world he gave gave himself a ransom for all. He suffered the penalty of the sin the penalty necessary to satisfy the justice of Almighty God where sin is concerned for the entire race. So salvation's already been the sinner's prayer as we call it today was already answered before we were born. And the answer was yes. Yes, where everyone is concerned. The gift was purchased. The price was paid. Christ paid it. The gift is sitting there for the world to accept. So as we say so often here, it's not a sin question any longer in the mind of Almighty God. That that issue of His justice was satisfied with his his son's death at Calvary. It's an issue of whether or not the world that had this accomplished for them will accept their Redeemer, will accept what the Redeemer accomplished when he redeemed the world from that issue of sin that was sitting on the table of God's justice. It isn't about asking him into your heart or coming forward and getting God to make a decision. It isn't about praying through. It's it's not about any of those things. It's not about committing your life to God. It's, It's about the fact that Christ committed his life for you The gift has been purchased. The sinner's prayer was answered. God was more than merciful. He was gracious to us. And His grace should be sufficient for us no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in in this little tiny cubicle, this office we live in called life here on planet Earth. We're in the tiniest of spaces. We have a sign on our door that says ambassador of what? This ministry of reconciliation. We have a job description. It's the ministry of reconciliation. And we become so entangled with the the things in the office, the people we meet, the things we can bring into the office to decorate the office with, this office called life. We become so wrapped up in all these things and so entangled in all these things that we think that's our purpose here on this life. And we wonder why the first drawer in the office is filled with all the pills to see if we can overcome the fact we can't sleep, overcome the fact that we have so much anxiety all the time, overcome the fact that we're depressed because we've got this sin nature in us and things are happening and things are happening in the world that we can't explain, uh, terrible things, and we've not learned to be content. This isn't the full story, this little office called life. Heaven in life everlasting is the full story 
And we can't see that. It's like someone one time explained the tapestry is, is there and God's woven the tapestry, but we're underneath it and we're bumping our heads every, every day of our life on the stitching that's on the bottom of the tapestry, scratching ourselves up and becoming depressed and how are we going to get away from this rat race? But we can't see the top layer of the tapestry. We can't see the hereafter. That's where our faith comes in. That's where our trust comes in. Uh, God's woven it. He knows about it. He knew about it all along. Uh, And what he has in store for those who will take him at his word and accept the the gift that his son purchased is far greater than any of us can even imagine. We can't imagine what life is like there because we've become so entangled in what life is like here that we can't get beyond the here and now. And we wonder why worry, anxiety, despair, despondency, depression are part of our lives. Well, that's why, folks. Uh, You see why Paul told young Timothy, who had the same lesson to learn that Paul had already learned, what he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 4. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Someday soon, David, uh, sitting in the back there, David Stallings running all that equipment, is going to show us the tune that he's put to this verse. And what a way to learn this verse. Bible memorization is something I think that can really help us tremendously in our lives when we apply those Bible verses to the details that come up in our lives. And, uh, and, and you know, what a way to, to memorize the Bible. Uh, what better way could there be than putting it to music to remember it by? And Dave saw something here. He saw a regiment uh, singing this song as they marched along. And, and, and I loved it. And I said, you know, he's gonna sh- she's going to share that with us uh, in the near future, I'm sure. No man that worth entangleth himself, Timothy, with the affairs of this life. Why? So that he might please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.1 2 Timothy 2.2 And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. What would Timothy have heard about the Apostle Paul? Well, look what Paul underwent. Would Timothy know the trials and tribulations that came Paul's way? Sure he would. And what did Timothy know about Paul? That Paul had learned to be content in whatever state Paul was in. The same, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Notice carefully, just a side note here. Paul didn't say teach men how to become teachers of other men as this verse is so often taken today. How many have taken it in that sense? Paul didn't, Paul didn't tell Timothy that. Meaning, Timothy, you are supposed to teach the method of teaching to other men. Then those other men will be able to teach also. Now, that isn't what Paul's saying here, folks. Notice that once again, read it carefully. Paul said, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. That would be Paul's doctrine. That would be what Paul taught. That would be Paul's attitude given that he was allowing doctrine to govern his life instead of emotion. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, Timothy, teach those things to other men. What will be the result of teaching that which Paul taught in the manner of Paul's life while Paul was teaching? Well, the faithful men... The faithful men you teach, some of those faithful men will become so impassioned over the message and the manner in which you delivered it, Paul, that they'll want to deliver that message themselves. And as they learn from you what Paul taught, they'll be able to teach what Paul taught in their own right. Now, that's the idea, folks. Are you catching it? Paul didn't say teach the method of teaching. He simply said teach, just teach. 
And as a result of your teaching, you can expect those sufficiently faithful in wanting to learn and to be able to someday teach themselves will go out and do that very thing. Uh, the two major hindrances to learning, um, I don't know why I threw this in, but I think it's important. Uh, number one hindrance to learning today uh, is thinking there's nothing left to be learned. That's the number one hindrance. And what happens that we think there's nothing left to be learned? We grow up in various faith systems, taking this verse, that verse, the other verse, as though they're all speaking about us. When they're not, some verses are speaking about other people in Scripture given other circumstances for other purposes that God's working out in men's lives. So we take those verses and we develop in our own thinking what we determine ought to be right. And that becomes our belief system. Well, I think that sounds right to me, so I think I believe that. Rather than saying God's word says this, and this is who he said his word to. We're not Israel. We were never promised a land as an everlasting inheritance, never, ever, ever. We were never put under a law contract as Gentiles, not one time. So it's impossible for you to commit transgression. Did you know that? That's a word in your Bible for the word sin, is transgression. But you can't transgress something when there's no law telling you there's a penalty for that transgression. All of us come short of doing the right thing. All of us come short of doing what's just in the eyes of Almighty God where other people are concerned. And we don't have to have a law uh, to, tell us to, not, uh, to tell us not to do A and to do B and not to do C, but to definitely do D. We don't need a law for that. We all have that self-bent, that self-focus in us. That's the sin nature. Everything filtered through that sieve of how does this affect me? What do I stand to gain? What do I stand to lose because of how this person related to me or because this person's asking me for something or this person's doing something that's, that's casting a, a shadow over my feelings about myself? You know, we all come short of doing the right thing where other people are involved. And so that needed to be corrected. But the transgression comes when you're given a direct law and told, don't do this, do that. And what did Paul say? Where there is no law, there is no transgression. And what did Paul say? All things are lawful for me. Why? Because the law was set aside, nailed to the cross of Christ. So Paul said, all things are lawful, but not all things edify me, and definitely not all things that I do are going to be edifying to someone else. So love is the end game of this and not love in a touchy-feely kind of warm, fuzzy uh, thinking. We define love that way. Love is always doing what's in the best interest of the other individual and we all come short of that. And when we think back, we can see that others throughout history have always come short of that. And that's another word for sin, coming short of what's right, the right thing to do where other folks are concerned. Now, if... We put some speed limits out there to prove that to you folks. If I said, well, I'm going to prove that you always come short. We're going to put some speed limits along the highway here. 35. Now, what are you going to learn from those speed limits? That you're always going to want to go 35 and maybe 38 because you can get away with that. They won't stop you if you go 3 or 4 or 5, maybe 8 miles over if you're on the expressway. But you always want to push the limit. And that's why the law was put into place. To prove to Israel that they had a lack within themselves when it came to doing what's just where other people are concerned. And so, learning that, learning that that transgression is impossible for you to commit. Now, can you sin? Yes, a different word for sin because you're coming short in your daily life of what's good for those around you. And you always will come short of that glory of God while you're in this earthly tent. 
That had to be corrected also. Well, um, thinking there's nothing left to be learned, that stopped people from learning. Being more concerned with the methodology of the delivery uh, than with the message to be delivered. That's a second uh, detriment to that. Uh, Anyway, uh, let's move on from there. Paul wanted Timothy, his son in a manner of speaking, not his biological son, but his son in the faith. Paul wanted his young son in the faith, Timothy, to understand uh, that becoming all caught up in the affairs of this life, the things that take place, the people, the things, the circumstances, can entangle a man such that his earthly focus, his earthly focus becomes a distraction, uh, a distraction to the point that the affairs of this life, rather than the doctrine that he has learned, becomes that which shapes his attitude and therefore directs his actions. Uh, let me say it this way: desperate need. Desperate need from our perspective, apart from doctrinal hope, can lead to despondency. And how is despondency or hopelessness defined by society? Depression. And guess what's the very opposite of depression? Definition, when you you go by definition. Joy is the very opposite. Joy isn't happiness. Uh, We can be happy one day, we can be mad. Paul could do the same. Paul, Paul could be very angry on one day and very happy the next. But Paul always had joy. That was unchanging in his life because that joy attitude was there because of the doctrine Paul knew. Now, this is all what I like to call doctrine of thinking that Paul's presenting. And he does so over and over in his epistles, especially here in Philippians. He presents doctrine of thinking so that, our, so that his divine viewpoint can begin to overtake our human viewpoint and we can begin to have our attitudes changed by that which we know to be true in His Word. And we can learn to depend on Him, to trust in Him, to rely upon Him, to have confidence in Him, to believe in Him. That's what He wants from us. Paul's handbook on joy. What a marvelous little epistle. That I hate to leave this epistle. I love it so much. Joy is an attitude. Joy is a state of mind in spite of the circumstance at hand because of the doctrinal truths that establish our minds, that settle our minds. That's what Paul's teaching us here, folks. I want you to notice something back in verse 12 that's very important to Paul's message. Look back with me at verse 12 for a moment. Notice what Paul was not saying there. Sometimes we can learn more about what he does not say uh, than we can learn from the words that are actually written. I know both how or what it's like to be abased, and I know what it's like again to abound. Is is that how you've read that verse? I know both how. Are you reading that in the sense of, I know what it's like because I went through it. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Don't read it that way. That's not his point. He was not talking about the reality of his experience. I know how to do it because here it comes. He was talking about what that experience taught him. That's what he knew. Paul was no stranger to being abased. And Paul certainly enjoyed times of having more than was sufficient from earthly perspective to meet his personal needs. But the real issue is here is not that Paul knew what it was like to be in either condition, but that Paul knew how to be while he was in whatever condition presented itself. That's the issue here. He didn't simply know what it would, uh, that he would be that way. He knew how to be when he was that way, whatever that way was. I hope you're understanding this. The point is this. How should a believer be in attitude uh, when that believer is brought low? Well, Paul's teaching us here what he learned. He learned how to be. 
He learned to be content. That's how he learned what he learned to be. Content. How should a believer be when that believer has an overabundance? Content. Contentment is a a, a powerful contentment is a peaceful and satisfied state of mind no matter the circumstance at hand. That's the best way I could define it. Someone has defined it as a state of mind in which one's desires are confined to his lot, whatever that lot may be. Someone else has said contentment is the brother of peace. It is finding great joy in what you already have without thought of demand for more. Uh, That's why I've entitled this message, uh, in my own mind, Contentment and Communication. Uh, Joy is a contented state of mind. You see, while Paul's happiness may have been earthly motivated, his contentment came from an entirely different angle, an entirely different source. The grace of God was Paul's sense or his source of contentment. We might put it this way. As citizens of heaven, and every one of us are citizens of heaven, if we've taken God at his word concerning what his son accomplished for us, where our sins are concerned. Now, how many have done that? Think about this. When you pray for forgiveness... For a sin you commit, what sin are you praying for forgiveness for? Would it not be a transgression under the law when you look at the Ten Commandments? But you're not under that law and you can't transgress that law. Never, ever once is that word used for any of you folks at all, believers or unbelievers alike. Because you weren't given a law, the law was taken out of the way. The speed limit signs were taken out of the way. But does that mean we always do what's right where the other people on that highway are concerned? We come short of measuring up to rightness when it comes to relating to one another in the mind of God Almighty. We do it every day of our lives. Without a law, we do it. You don't need a license to sin. If anybody tells you the grace message just gives you a license to sin, they don't understand sin. They don't understand their own lack of doing always, at all times, never an iota short of doing what's perfectly right and just where another individual's concerned. So they think that sin is the transgression of one of the ten. They don't want to go back to the 613 things of the law, but we'll go back to the ten. And if we've transgressed one of those, and what are we praying for forgiveness for? Those transgressions, according to the law program, which we are supposed to be believing God took off of us and put onto his son in order to be saved in the first place. You see something faulty here and why Satan is using what the Bible calls ministers of righteousness to keep us in line, lest we have a license to sin. I'm not questioning their motivation. Their motivation may be pure, totally pure. Well, we want to see believers' lives changed. We want to see people stop doing some of these things that are damaging to themselves and damaging to others. We want to see people living, quote-unquote, godly lives. So if we hammer away at sin and we hammer away at the guilt that's got to come because of that sin that we're making known in your life, why, we'll keep people in line. That never kept anybody in line. It didn't keep Israel in line. God didn't give Israel the law so they could learn to be good. God gave Israel the law to prove to them they were always going to come short of that thing called perfection, perfect righteousness. Uh, Sins, plural, are always the symptom of the disease that lies within and it lies within each of us. In fact, we were conceived with that disease. Oh, these are going to be some terrific things when we get into the book of Romans that we're going to learn. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 once again. This is important, and notice what that verse does not say. Paul didn't say there, I have heard 
that in every state I should be content. Paul said, I have learned that in whatever state I am. Is that in there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have learned. There it is in caps. I have learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. Contentment is learning that life is not the supplier of our joy. Uh, Being in Christ is the only thing that can provide the contented state of mind. A person's allotment in life is at best a fluctuating reality. You've already discovered that. You've, everyone here has lived long enough to know that life is a fluctuating reality. What about a believer's allotment in heaven? Is that a fluctuating thing? What about all spiritual blessings in heavenly places that are belong to you as a believer because they belong to Christ and you being joined to Christ, what belongs to Him belongs to you. Is that a fluctuating reality? Is God taking some things away from His Son from time to time, giving His Son some additional things from time to time? Or is God's grace age package to His Son already poured out on His Son because His Son already proved Himself to God the Father at Calvary? He could do no less. The ultimate servant was Jesus Christ. Always did the will of His Father. But you see, being joined to Him... Everything that he has belongs to you. Wow. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ himself. Blessed with all spiritual, not all but one or two that you might be able to wring out of the arm of a reluctant God along the way. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ that God could possibly bring to pass for you is done. It's yours. Belongs to you. I would say what we need to do is learn about those spiritual blessings. We took a year to do that. We'll do it again sometime, I'm sure, in the future. Um, Repetition, I I think, sometimes is the way for us to learn these things. But, you know, we have so much in Christ that we don't need to allow circumstances, people, and things to affect us to the point we become so entangled with what's happening around us that we lose sight of what is ours right now being placed into the person of the Son of God Himself. Uh, I tell you, if that doesn't take over and settle and establish your minds, then you're still tangled up with something in that life that you're not letting go of. And You know, Israel wasn't dealing with Christ in heaven as we are in this age of grace. They knew nothing. Israel knew nothing of Christ uh, as the head of the church, his body. They knew nothing of all the spiritual blessings and heavenly places that belong uh, to, the, to the church, the body of Christ. Israel didn't know anything about a heavenly citizenship, a place of abode for eternity uh, that we saints of the age of grace have. But Israel knew something. Israel knew that God was with them and they could depend on God to do what he promised them. Uh, as at least the believers of that program um, understood. Now the non-believers, we know they didn't trust him for anything, but the believers of that program did. And listen to what the psalmist of the earthly kingdom promised that earthly kingdom program, those saints promised a land forever, not heaven and then a land, or not a land and not heaven, or not heaven and not the land, or not heaven and then come right back down to the land. They were promised a land forever. They were never, ever promised heaven. Our citizenship is where, according to our apostle? Heaven. Oh, God's got a plan for heaven and the earth. That's why you don't see the universe used in Scripture. You see heaven and earth, heaven and earth, heaven and earth. Over and over again, he's got a plan for the heavenlies. It involves the saints called the body of Christ. It involves the saints of this age of grace inserted in a prof- into the middle of a prophetic program to separate that, uh, that time period of the prophetic program. We're going to be caught up. The ambassadors are going to be, be called home. And when we're called home and war breaks out on this planet, 
uh, against the Christ rejectors of this planet, God is going to resume his program for the earth. That's why there is a rapture and a tribulation period. But we can't put ourselves into that program for the earth and think that those spiritual, uh, those physical things promised those people belong to us today. They do not. They were a physical people with a physical promise, this earth forever. We are a spiritual creation promised a heavenly citizenship forever and a new body to go along with that heavenly citizenship. So we can't look at Israel's promises and claim them as our own. We've got to be able to rightly divide the word of truth to see who's speaking. To whom are they speaking? What's the issue? What's the context? Does it pertain to us, as we've said so often here? You're not building an ark today. So that portion of Scripture doesn't apply to you. There's principle we can drag out of the Bible, all through the Bible, because the Holy Spirit inspired it. So we can take principle from all portions of the Bible. We're to study the entire Bible from front to back. It's all for our learning, for our understanding. But it's all not written distinctly about us and what God's doing through us and what His plan for us is all about. it's, It's written... It's written to different people at different times regarding the two programs of God, one earthly, one heavenly. And if we can't rightly divide between those two programs, we're going to have a a problem. We're going to have a deep problem. What are we going to do when we read that passage? Christ speaking to Israel, John speaking to Israel, be baptized, what for? The remission of your sins. What are we going to do today? If we're going to take that literally for what it says, what are we going to do with it today? Are we going to invent something or create something and say, well, now it's a testimony. It wasn't a testimony when it was written. It wasn't a testimony when it was given. But it was never given to you. John said, I didn't know Christ in any other way, but that he be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, or that's why I've come baptizing with water. Couldn't be any clearer. That was a requirement for those people who were believers in God's program with that nation to enter their earthly promised kingdom. Those who were baptized, they were making the confession that the nation, the entire nation, never lived up to that contract where it came to their rightness before God. And they were to make that confession. It was never a confession of transgressions under the law program. Look at it. Look at it in the Word. It wasn't a a matter of confessing to God every time they lied or stole or cheated or any of those things, folks. It was a confession, Leviticus 26.40, Daniel 9.4, 1 John 1.9. It was a confession that the nation, the entire nation, corporately, never measured up to what they promised God they would become through their performance. What did they promise God they would become through their performance? Righteous. Oh, we'll all... Righteousness. We'll always do the right thing where someone else is concerned, where others are concerned, where we are concerned. We'll always measure up to what you would consider the right thing. That's what they promised. And the prophet said they swore falsely when they entered into a covenant with God. What confession does God want from Israel? You gave us a law contract and we said we'd be righteous and we didn't. Our fathers before us have not been righteous. We've never measured up to what you would call righteous. That's the confession he wanted them to make. And all the while, the folks of today, who were never under law in the first place, but under grace, according to our apostle, are going back and confessing to God when we transgress Israel's law, a law we were never under in the first place. Boy, should you stop praying? I don't think you should stop praying. I think you should pray without ceasing. But the flavor of your prayer should change. Instead of, please forgive me for this transgression under Israel's law contract, 
we should be praying, thank you for the fact that I'm not under law at all. I'm under grace. Thank you that everything, every shortcoming of mine when it came to what's perfectly right, you've placed onto your son and judged it there. And as proof that you are satisfied with what your son accomplished on our behalf, Christ rose again from the dead. He's alive. The fact he's alive proves that the Father accepted the payment God made for all mankind. All mankind. So the gift's been purchased. Salvation isn't a question in God's mind. It's not something he must decide to do for individual A or individual B at a point in their life when they come to believe something. Salvation was accomplished for all of us. The issue is how many will accept that gift? How many will accept what the Son did for them at Calvary? How many will take God at his word and say, if God says it's true that his Son took my sin, all of it, the, the previous sin, the present sin, the future sin, he took all of it before I was ever born, put it onto his Son, judge it there, there's no more sin to be judged in my life because it was all judged. That's the issue. How many people will do that? You know, our prayer life should change in flavor. Instead of asking him to forgive us, which we're supposed to believe was already done long ago, we're to, we're to thank him for the forgiveness we already have in Christ. We should be thanking him. It should be not a... When Paul says pray without ceasing, he isn't saying, never close your mouth. I already have that problem where my wife's concerned. I never close my mouth. So when we're with somebody, she never gets to speak. Why? Because I'm rattling on and on and on and on and on. I never shut up. So he isn't saying, don't ever close your mouth. Just be talking incessantly. Thanking God all the time. That isn't what he's saying. Prayer is an attitude of your mind. It should be an attitude of your mind. I don't have to pray verbally when I sit down at a table over my food. Why? Because the attitude of my mind is thanksgiving every time I eat that God declared this clean. Clean. He gave us He gave us that which He knew would sustain our bodies. We don't have to ask Him, bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. Guess what? God's already blessed that food to the nourishment of every unbeliever's body. It's everybody's body that's nourished by that food. He doesn't have to change the food to get to get that food to be nourished so you can eat it. He's already done that. But why not come to the table with a thankful attitude that God gave us that which nourishes our bodies and made it such that we enjoy doing it at the same time. Some of us enjoy it a little overly much. (laughs) And I'm pointing the fingers back to me, stepping on my own toes behind the lectern here. Um, I love food. (laughs) I love food. And it can become something that entangles me. Now, am I doing what it's in my best interest when I overeat? And I do it all the time. No, I'm not. And I'm not doing what's in the best interest of those people out there that have never heard the message of grace. Because if I continue to overeat, guess what's going to happen to me physically? And am I going to be available to teach those people I'm supposed to be loving and want to stay around to teach the message of grace as long as I can? none of us measure up to what's doing the right thing in everybody else's minds and for their purpose we just don't do it and we don't do it because we have a disease and God took care of that disease we don't lose our fellowship with God folks because we don't have forgiveness for things today our forgiveness is past tense don't fall for that well if you if you don't have that forgiveness kept up to date you're going to lose your fellowship with God your fellowship with God wasn't based on the plane of your forgiveness your fellowship with God was established on the, on the basis of the fact He placed you into the person of His Son. You couldn't lose your fellowship with God. 
You couldn't lose it in a million lifetimes. The most you could ever lose is your enjoyment of it if you get your mind focused away from it. But you've got fellowship. You couldn't lose fellowship. But what's the next thing I'm going to fall for if I believe in conditional forgiveness and conditional fellowship? Conditional blessings. You don't have your fellowship. Well, you're going to lose some blessings along the way. Some of your family might get sick. Well, you might have that flat tire and that lonely road in the middle of the rainstorm in the middle of the night. Because God's not going to bless you if you've lost your fellowship. Directly contrary to what our apostle tells us, we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the place of our citizenship, which is in heaven. These are things that we're just, we're wrapping up Philippians, and I've not got through half my message. Um, but these are things that I think are important for you folks to understand. Joy is a state of mind. It comes as we take our focus away from this life, as we take our focus away from the circumstances surrounding us, as we take our focus from who we are, practically speaking, and change that focus into who we are, positionally speaking. And if we can live in that positional realm in our thinking, we can have joy in spite of the circumstance. Because it isn't about what happens here. It isn't about uh, the... uh, the decorating of the office called life. How much more we can gain? How much more? You know, we got to feel secure. <laughs> Is your security in what you have? Does your security rest in what you're able to have set aside for the future? Are we to take care of our family? Yes, absolutely. Paul says the one who refuses to take care of his family is worse than an infidel. He's denying the faith. He may be a believer, but he's denying what that truth tells him to do. We're to take care of our own. You know, we could learn the lesson. We spent some time here this past week with the Amish, uh, with some folks who live right in the midst of a big Amish community, and I really began to study the Amish folks and their belief system and their customs and their way of life. I really got into that. We can learn something from those folks. They refuse to take any money from the government. They refuse to buy insurance. Why? It's community. It's about taking care of one another. We should be taking care of one another today. Well, I've completely departed the message and we're down to 12 seconds. (laughs) That's all right. I think these things are important. Contentment is a satisfied, peaceful state of mind based on who you've already been made to be by being joined to the person of the Savior at the point when you took God at His word concerning what that Savior accomplished on your behalf at Calvary. It isn't something, faith isn't something you muster up enough of. Well, if I could just get enough faith then I think maybe but I can't be sure I'm going to be in heaven because I some things happen in my life and sometimes I really don't feel saved oh boy Satan's got you right where he wants you <laughs> he's got you right where he wants you because if he can't have your soul he'll settle for the remainder of your life so he can keep you a defeated believer and Satan loves to have his his boat filled with defeated believers because they're of no heavenly uh, usefulness when it comes to the message that we're to be taking to people So defeated believers is what Satan loves. And how many of us have lived there most of our lives? Because we're focusing on earthly things and because we've listened to ministers of righteousness telling us if we don't dot all the I's, cross all the T's, if we don't do all the do's and abstain from all the don'ts, we're going to lose our fellowship with God. If we lose our fellowship, we're going to lose our blessings. And now we may get some spankings. And we live in an unsettled state of mind, never fully knowing if we've done quite enough or have abstained from quite enough to keep God in a happy state of mind toward us. God's attitude toward a believer is unfluctuating. He sees you not as you are practically speaking, 
not where his justice is concerned. He sees you where you are in the person of his son. That's why what his son accomplished for you at Calvary and your trust in that freed God to take his blessing package, his grace age blessing package, open it up and not distribute it here, piecemeal here and there, but to shower it down on all of our heads. What we need today, number one, we need to know how to rightly divide this word of truth so we know what part's about us and what God's doing through us in this age of grace. Number two, what we need today is to understand who we are in Christ and to focus on who he's already made us to be by joining us to a son. If we have our focus there and off of the people, the things, and the circumstances of this life, joy will be the resultant attitude. And joy is every bit as much for you today and belonging to you today as any other blessing in God's grace age blessing package. He wants you to have joy. Paul said it over and over and over again. He used some form of that word rejoice more often in this little epistle called Philippians than in any other book he wrote. I hope we've learned some things through this book. Um, who knows where if, if I'll go any further in. I think, we're, I think we'll go into Romans uh, probably our very next lesson. But let's thank him. This is a marvelous little book. Um, read it again and again. Don't, don't lose sight of it because we're through studying it. It's taken us, what, two years to go through a little four-chapter book of Philippians? Don't lose sight of it. <laughs> Four years. Oh. oh, I'm embarrassed. Four years to go through this little four-chapter book. My goodness. Well, you know, there's a lot in it, a lot of meat in it, a lot of meat in God's Word for us to learn. Uh, when he said study, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing is not the Greek correctly handling, no matter what the translations say. Correctly ha- you cannot correctly handle the word of truth unless you know how to rightly divide it. Two different words entirely. Rightly dividing between God's workings down through time with his people through time as revelation has been progressive down through the ages and, and learning. We have our own Apostle Paul and learning what he tells us uh, gives us everything we need for life and ministry in the age of grace and gives us everything we need to have an attitude of joy daily in our lives. Let's thank God for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much this morning for who you are, for your love for us, for your grace to us, for all that you've already accomplished on our behalf, indeed on behalf of the entire world. We thank you that that gift was offered. It's there. It's being offered to to everyone today and it's our responsibility to tell them that the answer was yes the sinner's prayer was answered in the affirmative the answer is yes God did all that could possibly be done he can do no more where salvation is concerned we thank you so much for your gift of salvation that we might show other people what's already been accomplished and that they need only take you at your word concerning that to be placed into the person of Christ himself What a marvelous plan you had. What a wonderful God you are. We thank you for our Savior, for the plan that you had for us. We thank you for your word so that we might learn the details of this. Study your word, not read it, study it, so that we might know and understand and have our minds established by the truths that are there. We thank you so much. I thank you for these people. I thank you that they've come out faithfully Sunday after Sunday to study your word with me, to open it up and to take the things that are there in that word and to apply them to the details of their lives. I thank you for the joy that should belong to each of us as we allow human viewpoint to be displaced by divine viewpoint and 
such that it becomes not something we're trying to do on a daily basis, but something that we are on a daily basis. I thank you for all things and for the Savior that we serve. What a wonderful Savior He is. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.